From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. As the political divide deepens through disinformation campaigns about the election results, vaccines, 9-11, and more, it can feel like unity and consensus are shrinking on the horizon. And yet, the only way to address the pandemic or the fault lines in our democracy is if we can bridge the divide and find an enclave of common ground. Our guest today has decades of experience finding that common ground, and in some cases, persuading people to change their minds about deeply held beliefs. Daryl Davis is a blues musician by profession, but has devoted a lifetime to reaching out to KKK members and starting a dialogue. Since he began the work, he has persuaded over 200 KKK members to leave the organization. He joins us today to discuss how he manages to persuade people to abandon long-held beliefs and how these tactics might help the national crisis of polarization. Daryl, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Daryl, I want to start, you know, you're a musician by trade, but over the decades, you've also come to be known as an activist. Can you tell us how you came into that identity? What initiated it? Okay, well, first you have to understand my background. I'm the child of uh, parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I spent a lot of my formative years uh, traveling all over the world, going to school overseas. I did uh, kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, you know, overseas. My first exposure to school was in a multicultural environment overseas. My classmates were Nigerian, Italian, German, French, Japanese, Russian. However, when I would return back home here to my own country, the United States, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or newly integrated. Even though desegregation was passed by the Supreme Court in 1954, it didn't just happen overnight. It took years and years, right? I mean, arguably, it's still happening. It's still happening. Exactly. Exactly. So one of those years when I came back, I was age 10 in the fourth grade, and I was one of two black kids in the entire school. So consequently, all of my friends were white, and they were, you know, fourth and fifth graders. Many of my guy friends were members of the uh, Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join, so I joined. And we had a parade one day, along with the Girl Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, and Boy Scouts, and I was the only black participant in this uh, parade, in this march. Everything was going along fine. We got to a certain point in this route when suddenly I was getting hit with uh, bottles and soda pop cans and small debris from the street by just a small group of uh, white spectators off to my right on the sidewalk. Now, having never experienced anything like this, I thought those people over there don't like the scouts. <laughs> That's how naive I was. It wasn't until my, my scout leaders, who also were all white adults, came running over to me and covered me with their own bodies and quickly escorted me out of the danger that I realized I was the target because nobody else in my troop was getting this special protection. And I kept asking them, why, why are they doing this to me? What, what did I do? I didn't do anything. Why are they doing this to me? At the end of the march, I went home and uh, my parents who were not there, who were not present at the parade, uh, they were putting band-aids on me and cleaning me up and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them exactly what had happened and for the first time in my life, at the age of 10, my parents sat me down and explained to me what racism was. Believe it or not, 
I had never even heard the word racism at the age of 10. When my parents told me why this was happening to me, I did not believe them. I literally thought they were lying to me. What did they say exactly? They told me it was, it was because of the color of my skin. And some people have this, you know, issue where, you know, they may uh, dislike or hate someone of a different skin color or different religion and things like that. I couldn't believe it. I'd never even heard of that before, let alone seen it before. What's interesting is that you were coming into this knowledge at what I think must have been one of the heights of the civil rights era. Um, so there was there was this larger conversation happened that that for you you had been mostly um, isolated from, Correct. but now you were coming into it. Exactly, exactly. And you know, I walked away not believing my parents. Well, about a month and a half, two months later, that same year, 1968, on April the fourth, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember it very, very well. Every major city in this country burned to the ground, all in the name of racism. I realized my parents had not lied to me. They told me the truth. This this thing called racism does exist. But what I didn't know was, why does it exist? So at that age, I formed a question in my own mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? It just baffled my mind. So for the next 53 years, I've been on a journey to get that question answered. As an adolescent, I bought tons of books on uh, black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, anybody who had a sense of superiority, I wanted to learn about. Because I knew you were not born with that. It was acquired. Where does it come from? Where is it going? How can it be addressed? And I would ask people, you know, why are people like this? And they would say, oh, well, Daryl, you know, some people just like that. That's just, just the way it is. Well, that's not a good enough answer. So lo and behold, I graduated college with my degree in music. And you went to Howard I, University? I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C., got my degree in jazz. And while music became my profession, studying race relations became my obsession. I later joined a country, country music band. Country music had made a a repopularization here in the country. I was the only black guy in the band, and usually the only uh, black person where we played. And there was a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge up in a town called Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. The Silver Dollar Lounge was known as an all-white lounge. They didn't have signs posted or anything like that, you know, saying, you know, white people only or something like that, no colors allowed or whatever. But uh, the reputation was known. And black people simply, you know, did not go in there. They knew. Uh, you know, when you try to go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it's not a good combination. I came off the bandstand with the band on a break after the first set, and a white gentleman came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here, right? So I'm trying to see who's touching me. And he has a big smile on his face, and he's, he's praising the band and saying how much he enjoyed the music. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I was rather surprised because this this guy was at least a decade and a half older than me. And I was surprised that he did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's, you know, rollicking piano style, which came from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. So I, uh, I explained that to him and he didn't believe me. Even after I told him, I said, look, man, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis is a very good friend of mine. He's told me himself. He didn't believe that either. But he was so fascinated with me as a novelty or something, he invited me back to his table. 
took his glass, and he like clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever, uh, I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Now I'm completely mystified. Like, how can this be? So innocently, I asked him why. And at first, he stared down at the tabletop and did not answer me. I asked him again, and his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me. And he says to me, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing at him because I know a lot about the Klan. And I know they don't just come up to you and, and hug a black guy and praise their talent, want to hang out and buy him a drink. No, it doesn't work that way. So this guy is joking with me. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, produces his Klan membership card, and hands it to me. I recognize the Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. This thing was for real. So I stopped laughing because it wasn't funny anymore. Did you feel afraid? No, no, I didn't feel afraid. Uh, I felt like I was in the twilight zone because everything I knew about the Klan was not computing right there at that table. You know, these are people who go around hanging people from, from black people, especially from trees and Jewish people and, and bombing churches and, you know, suppressing, you know, black people's right to vote down south and all this kind of stuff, dragging them behind pickup trucks on and on. So, and here, here's this guy telling me he's in the Klan, he's buying me a drink. You know, it, it's not making any sense. And he was very friendly, but I realized, you know, this is for real. So I, I'm, I'm wondering why I'm sitting at this table with this Klansman. But, you know, um, he wasn't getting me uh, upset or, or, or afraid. He gave me his, his phone number and wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see, as he put it, the black guy who plays piano like Jerry Lee. So I said, okay, I'll call you. I called him every six weeks. And I'd call him on Wednesday or Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're out of the silver dollar. Come on out. He would come out. He would bring Klansmen and Klanswomen with him. And, you know, they didn't come in robes and hoods. You know, they came in, you know, regular street clothes. And uh, they would gather around the bandstand and watch me play while with the band. And they'd get on the dance floor and dance. And on the breaks, I'd make my way over to his table to say hello. And some of those Klan people were very curious about me. So they hung there at the table. They wanted to meet me and talk. Uh, others would see me coming and they'd get up and scurry across the room, you know, to distance themselves from me. For the people who stayed, what do you think was going on for them? Like, was An it education. A, a curiosity? <laughs> yes, definitely but, a curiosity. Okay. Definitely a curiosity because, you know, I, you know, I was not in their sphere as they were not in my sphere. You know, they grew up, I guess, with all kinds of different perceptions about people who were not like them and I, me being one of them. So... Now they're curious uh, because I guess I fascinated them with, with the piano playing as well. And so now they're curious. But what, uh, what was in it for them was an education. I quit that band at the end of that year and I went back to playing rock and roll and whatever else was going on. Uh, and I, you know, I lost track of the guy. I mean, I really had no reason to stay in contact with the Ku Klux Klan. And then later it dawned on me, Daryl, you blew it. You know, the answer to your question that has been plaguing you since the age of 10. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? You didn't realize it, but it fell right into your lap. Because who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization with over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who don't look like them and who do not believe as they believe. 
get back in contact with that Klansman and ask him the question and get him to fix you up with the Klan leader for the state of Maryland and interview other Klan leaders. And it seems like by doing that, you would be afforded an opportunity you hadn't had yet, which is to ask the follow-up question, which is, do you still hate me now that you know me? Right. And that would come much later. And, and oftentimes the answer would be, I really never should have hated you to begin with. And for the gentleman in the bar, and also for, you know, many others, eventually that was the answer, not for all. Right. But the answer was, they also had the cognitive dissonance, and over time that cognitive dissonance led to a reevaluation of how they were leading their lives. Exactly. But I'm curious, you know, it seems like this is sort of like your theory of change, um, rooted in the idea that persuasion is a really effective way to, on some scale, unite people and well, ultimately to live in a more peaceful state. Is that is that not accurate? Slightly. Um, not so much persuasion, because I don't want to say that I persuaded anybody to leave the Klan or leave white supremacy. You had a conversation. I had a conversation. It was an opening of a dialogue. Yes. I, I did not um, persuade them. I did not co convert them. You know, when you see my name in the media, it, it always says to the effect of, you know, black musician converts X number of white supremacists or whatever. No, I did not even convert one. What I, what I say is I am the impetus uh, for over 200 people to convert themselves. I, I am probably directly responsible for maybe 40 to 60, but uh, in, in all... Over 200, because a lot of these 40 to 60 then influenced their friends and their and their partners and stuff, and then they ended up leaving as well. So that makes the 200. But um, persuasion, no. Uh, here, here is uh, is how I go about it. First, you, you realize that one's perception is one's reality. Whatever somebody perceives becomes their reality. Whether it's real or not, it's their reality. It's what they believe, and they only know what they know. So if you try to attack somebody's reality, you're going to fail because it's real to them and they're going to defend it nail and tooth, whether or not their argument makes any sense or not, it's real to them. So you're better off not attacking their reality if you want to see them change. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is, is something that I've read has been one of the turning points for people who don't believe in vaccines is not to dissuade, not to persuade, mm -hmm. but to listen. First, I think that's what you're saying. Right. Step one is to open up this space for listening and then offer alternatives over time. Exactly. And you've experienced in multiple situations how that actually does create openings where you can get this cognitive dissonance going, which is actually what you want right. in this circumstance. Exactly. Daryl, I'm so curious, you know, this is a strategy that you obviously believe in because you've devoted so many decades to it. Well, I believe in it because it works, <laughs> you know. And, and because and because you, you have evidence that it works. Right. I'm curious if you think that there are any shortcomings where you've really seen this strategy um, hit walls and where you think that there really is a place for multiple strategies. Because obviously, um, you know, there are so many activists across the world, this country, who have different ways in. Um, but I'm also wondering, you know, there is a point when the Trump administration came in where we really saw how words and beliefs started manifesting more directly than I think many of us had seen in decades into violence um, and into action. And I'm wondering if your notion of listening and offering alternatives and offering this dialogue space, if that got challenged a little bit during that time. Sure. You know, I mean, there is no one 
cure for all. You know what I mean? So yes, you know, multiple strategies, uh, mul- you know, multiple ways of addressing the same problem are needed. Racism is a multifaceted phenomenon. You have institutionalized racism, systemic racism, individual racism, group racism, like, you know, neo-Nazis or KKK or... Implicit bias, racism that people aren't even consciously aware aware of. of. Exactly. So, and each one, you know, uh, may require a variation, you know, uh, of something or a totally different strategy. And can I ask you that addressing racism on scale requires a multi-pronged approach. You know, there's the Southern Poverty Law Center, there's the ACLU, NAACP, they file lawsuits, there's grassroots activism, yeah. And then there's your approach of um, having dialogue. You know, it's one thing when you talk to KKK members and they hold these beliefs, but what happens if you're talking to someone and then the conversation turns to not just a rally that they're going to or, um, you know, the a speech they're given, but uh, talk of, of actions? Because sometimes, you know, a, th- these beliefs become action. How do you how do you deal with that? And, and is there a point where someone goes too far for a conversation where where it's just that the the fear that is, you know, you've talked about as, as the seed has really solidified and calcified into hate. Is there a point of no return, at least as far as dialogue? There goes? will be people who will go to their grave on all sides being hateful, violent and racist. There's no changing them. Uh, but even if somebody of that mentality is willing to sit down and have a conversation, there is an opportunity to plant that seed. But it takes more than just planting a seed. You often have to come back and nourish that seed, pour water on it so that it you know, is, is healthy and, and blooms and bears fruit. So it's not just a question of planting the seed. So again, it takes time. It, it's not going to happen overnight. These people have been saturated with this ideology over time whether they grew up with it, whether they moved into an environment and they were surrounded by it, that's all they kept hearing in this echo chamber, you know, or whatever. They, they weren't born with it, but they acquired it and it, and it manifested and, and calcified over time in their minds. So therefore, it's going to have to be chipped away over time. And you can't know, obviously, going in right. whether you will be successful, but maybe that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is to, to give them the tools by which they can see, see things for themselves. And how can they refute that when they sit at a table with me and and just have a conversation and we end up liking the same movie or the same song or the same musical artist, the fact that I speak the same language. If you combine my childhood travels as, as being a kid in the foreign service with my now adult travels as a professional musician performing around the world, I've been to 57 countries on six continents. So I've been exposed to a multitude of religions ethnicities, colors of skin, belief systems, ideologies. And as such, we all, all over the world, want these same basic five core values in our lives. We all want to be loved. We want to be respected. We all want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we would simply learn to employ those five core values when we find ourselves in a society or a culture in which we are unfamiliar, if we apply those values, I guarantee the navigation will be much more smoother and uh, much more positive. And I tell you something, a missed opportunity for dialogue 
is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Nothing gets resolved without talking. Daryl, there's something that I personally just always struggle with, and, and I'm wondering if you can help because you've had so much experience. I wonder, and I wonder if others feel the same way, that sometimes talking to people who really hold hateful views is is almost a kind of betrayal. You know, I fear it gives that person a platform or in some ways could be construed as as validating that belief system. Um, and 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 for you, you know, you you've actually, you know, done favors for KKK members as as always it seems uh with the the stipulation that there be a return that, you know, either there be a conversation or or you take a trip to a museum, but you know, you've you've given you've loaned your personal bus yeah. so that KKK members could get to a rally. You've paid bail um, with the stipulation that that person, and by the way, that person was, he was at Charlottesville uh -huh. and you paid the bail, but then the stipulation was that he would go with you um, to the African American Museum in DC. Um, and I'm wondering if this has ever been a problem for you. Is, is this feeling that somehow you might inadvertently be validating, giving a platform or, or that just meeting is a form of betrayal? No, it's not a problem for me. It's a problem for some other people uh, who consider me to be a race traitor or a sellout and Uncle Tom and Oreo and whatever other names. You know, I've been called every name but my own, you know? So it's not a problem for me uh, because I've seen it work. I've seen it work. I, 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 have lent, I have lent clan members money and some have paid me back, some have not paid me back, you know, but it wasn't anything, you know, that uh, is gonna, you know, make me or break me. Um, but I've seen a lot of good come out because, like I said, we're all are human beings. And sometimes, you know, people don't always have the opportunities that we have. And if I can share some things with somebody vicariously or in person that will better their life, they realize that. And then they reciprocate in kind, whether it's to you or to somebody else down the road. And that's, you know, that's how you do it. I have received, believe it or not, I have received Klan robes and neo-Nazi stuff and all kinds of stuff in the mail from people I don't even know, have never even met. Uh, you know, they'll find me online and email me and say, hey, man, you know, I, I saw, I, I heard you on this podcast or that podcast, or I saw some talk you did on, on YouTube, you know, and it really got me thinking, you know, and I know, you know, you know, I understand, you know, that you collect this stuff because you had, you showed it on the podcast or whatever, you know, would you like mine? And I write them back, say, yeah, sure, you know, here, here's a P.O. box. And next thing I know, it's there, you know? So uh, it, it is effective, but like I said, it's not going to change everybody. I, and I've had, you know, I've had some violent incidents in, in, in my time. Uh, those have happened few and far between, fortunately. But there are people out there like that. They don't want to see you. They don't want to talk to you. You know, you are like a, a, a cockroach crawling on the floor. They're going to go over there and just stomp on you. No questions asked. Has that ever stopped you in your tracks no, or absolutely made you question? Not. No, I'm also curious, you know, there, particularly um, last summer during the the summer of uprising, I think that a way of thinking became um, more mainstream, which is that particularly around police violence, that it's not about a bad cop, that there isn't, you know, a bad apple in an otherwise good, you know, crop of apples, um, that there is a systemic problem. And, you know, as it pertains to policing, that policing was founded as a means of oppressing slaves, you know, through chattel slavery. And I'm curious if, you know, your approach is the one-to-one -one approach, the one person at a time. Do you think that that is in opposition at all to the notion that to address a systemic problem, you need a systemic solution? 
that's not the only answer, okay? Understand, systemic racism, uh, systemic police abuse or whatever, what is behind the system? A human being or human beings. So in order to change the system, you got to change the mentality of those working within that system who are promulgating the systemic whatever, you know? It's like uh, the computer does not make a mistake. It's the man who programmed the computer to do it. The computer is just simply responding to what man has programmed into it, right? The computer is not acting on its own. Since like the 1980s and stuff, uh, a lot of uh, white supremacist groups, and, and they're really doing it now even more so, is they, you know, they are getting their members to run for office, uh, whether it's county commissioner, sheriff, school board, you know, um, the motor vehicle department, go, get a job there. So that way we have access to people's addresses and license numbers and all that kind of stuff. You know, they got people in place. And, and so that's how it becomes systemic because somebody is within the system running it and adding to it. You know, if you could, if you could address these individuals um, and put better individuals within the system, then the system will change. We've been talking a lot about the one way of conversation from from your um, presenting these alternatives to KKK members and their receiving. I'm really curious if you have received anything in the conversations with them. Have you? What have you learned from these conversations? What have have they changed you at all? Yes, absolutely. Good question. I never got into this to to change anybody. The only reason I got into this was to answer a, the question of, of a 10-year-old, me. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? That's all I want to know. I didn't expect these people to change. I didn't expect to become friends with them or lend them my bus or bail them out of jail or any, you know, that was not in my, in my plans. I never thought any of these people would change. We've heard that a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. So why would I think that a Klansman would change his robe and hood? You know, I thought these people are, that's, a, that's how they are, that's it. All I want to know is why, that's all. And, and then I walk away, I never see you again. You know, you've given me the answer, fine. But something happened. The leopard changes its spots in, in the form of a Klansman. These changes kept happening as a result of these conversations I was having. These people were beginning to think differently because they'd never been presented with this, especially from somebody who looks like me. So what did you walk away with? What changed for you? What I walked away with was realizing that, wow, you know, I never expected this person to change. And then he did. And then another one did. And then another one. I realized I stumbled onto something that was effective. And that's why I have continued it for 37 years. And for you, that is something that has changed who you are in the world. Yes, because I realize now that a tiger cannot change its stripes. A leopard cannot change its spots. Why? Because they were born with it. But a Klansman is not born with that robe and hood. That's a right. learned behavior. What can be learned can also be unlearned. Now, you know, you, you mentioned the uprising last year. I say that this is the best thing that has happened uh, in the 20th and 21st century so far. Okay? Wow, that, that's very inclusive of so many things. Yes. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not discounting anything from the civil rights movement of the uh, 20th century, okay? Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, all the great black and white uh, activists, yes, they moved this country forward. There's no denying that. When the establishment, of course, the white establishment, right? When they looked at those protests of yesteryear in 1955 through 1968, what did they see? 
they saw an ocean of black people marching, sitting in, demonstrating, protesting, with a smattering of white people participating with them. All right. And they were not moved by it. So the pages of progress turned very slowly. Now, that was yesteryear. Let's, let's fast forward to last year, 2020, with uh, George Floyd. When the establishment looked at those protests, what did they see? They saw an ocean of, of Black people and an ocean of white people marching together. We've never seen that many white people participate in our cause before. And as a result of that collective voice, the pages of progress turn much faster. Mm. That's a lesson for all of us to learn. You know? Okay, so while, while those marches of blacks and whites uh, last year, last summer, uh, were geared mostly towards the police across the country, we saw a larger ripple effect than we have ever seen. Police officers being charged and convicted a lot quicker, whereby before they were never getting even charged. NASCAR banning the Confederate battle flag. Whoever thought that would happen? The sovereign state of Mississippi removing the Confederate portion out of their flag body. Food brands like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben changing their labels. Legislation being passed to remove Confederate statues or change the names of buildings named after slave owners. All this happening at once. What accelerated the movement last year from the movement from 1955 to 1968? The collective voice. So that's what we need to focus on. Let's bring more people of, of difference into our, into our fold, and that way things will accelerate a lot quicker. And what's so interesting about something that you had mentioned earlier is that almost the wider the difference, oh, that almost made it easier to have these conversations. Because I think so many people have the personal experience of trying to have these conversations among family members, among people whom you love and whose views feel personal. Um, and I think what you're saying is that it's actually really helpful that it's not personal. And I think in some ways, and, and actually I'm curious what, what you think, that that's why the arts and I think music in particular can be this this common ground. And you had mentioned in the conversations that oftentimes it was like, you know, music that brought you together yeah. or like a movie that was, you know, you both really loved. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, how how important is the arts for you in this in this equation? OK, well, I'm a musician. I'm a band leader. And my job as a band leader on stage when I'm performing is to bring harmony between all my voices on stage, whether they are my instrumental voices, the saxophone, piano, bass, drums, guitar, uh, or, the, or the vocal voices. I want harmony. The only time that I want dissonance is when I intentionally inject it into the music for effect. If it happens randomly, that's not music, that's noise. Somebody hit a bad note or something, right? When I finish my gig and I walk off my stage and I'm walking through society wherever I'm going, I want harmony around me. I don't want people fighting and kicking and name calling and all this stuff. So yes, the music is very important. And music does unite people. When you go to a club for music, whether it's a DJ or whether it's a band, everybody's going to be there. It's not just a certain kind of people. There are going to be restaurateurs there. There are going to be students. There are going to be uh, computer programmers, bank people, the garbage man who picks up your trash every Saturday morning. He likes music. He's going to be there. 
So it, it attracts a wide variety of people. Music has that power. And that's why I get very upset whenever the, the budget gets cut or the economy goes south. First thing the schools do is cut out the arts. The arts are not a luxury. They are a necessity. They teach kids how to work together, ensemble, be creative, express themselves. We need to, to really appreciate the arts a lot more. Daryl, I, I want to ask, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about consensus and how to find common ground as it relates to the pandemic. But the, the problem with the pandemic, not that we don't have this problem with systemic racism, but with the pandemic, the loss of life um, and the public health crisis seems so acute. I'm wondering if you think that there is any way to apply what you've learned on a macro scale with the pandemic, because the, the one um, where the rubber hits the road is that your approach is a one-on-one -on -one approach, but it takes time. It takes a lot of seeding and then waiting for something to grow, but it feels like we don't have time as it relates to the pandemic. So what do we do? Well, we need to get over our impatience. But um, yes, you know, uh, I do a one-on-one -on -one approach. But I think, again, you know, we have to listen. We have to understand, you know, what's going on. We have to set examples, uh, whether we do it through mass media uh, or whether we do it one-on-one -on -one or, or, you know, commercials on TV, commercials on, on, on Facebook or whatever. All these things help. And, and it's, it's incumbent upon us to not just wait for any kind of legislation or mandates, et cetera, our country can only become one of two things. It can become that which we sit back and watch it become, or it can become that which we stand up and make it. You know, let's, let's, let's provide it from a ground roots perspective. I understood why some people, especially black people, have been hesitant about, about the, uh, the vaccine. You know, we have a history of the Tuskegee experiment and forced hysterectomies back in the 50s. My mother was a victim of that. That's why I'm an only child. She wanted more children. And then, and then you don't find out until you know, 20, 30 years later, you know, because it was all hidden by the government or whatever. And now you're, fi you're finding out, oh, wow, why did they do that to us? You know, so I'm not going to trust them anymore, that kind of thing. So there is that, that hesitancy. And, and I, you know, I, I even had a little bit of that, but I was, I, I got fully vaccinated and I'm glad I did. And I encourage everybody to do so. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so lovely to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. You can also find Daryl Davis's podcast, Changing Minds with Daryl Davis, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay strong.